Okay, welcome to the John Bryan Podcast, and this is kind of a podcast for my other podcast as well, the Skeven Geology Podcast, because this is kind of a history topic, and this is this is where my knowledge of the law as a trial lawyer, especially as a civil rights lawyer, and as an amateur historian kind of collide together. And, and one thing I've been researching a lot lately is the Scopes Trial from 1925. And it, it was known at the time as the trial of the century. And the funny thing is, is that just the year before, there had been another trial of the century. So in the first 25 years of the 1900s, we had already had the first two trials of the century, and we still had 75 years left to go, and O.J. Simpson hadn't even been born yet. But probably the most famous trial in American history was known as the Scopes Trial. And being a trial lawyer myself with the last name of Brian, and you'll see why that's important, I've always been interested in that trial, and, and a lot of times you'll hear it referred to as the monkey trial. And the front page of the newspapers at that time, such as the New York Times, were talking about this trial for days on end. And I think there were 200 newspapers that had reporters that were there covering this trial. There were 22 telegraphers, if that's how you pronounce it, present at the trial, who were sending out 165,000 words per day via this brand new technology called telegraph wires. <clears throat> Many of these wires were installed to cover this very trial. One of the prosecutors, and I bet you didn't know this, one of the prosecutors that were involved in this trial was a guy named Sue Hicks. That's right. He was a boy named Sue. A, a funny side story related to this trial is that this guy, Sue Hicks, was probably the inspiration for Johnny Cash's famous song, A Boy Called Sue, or A Boy Named Sue, which is, of course, one of the best all-time country classics. And, you know, if you've ever wondered what Sue looks like, you can actually look him up on the internet. His name is Sue Hicks. He was a prosecutor. Um, the song was actually not written by Johnny Cash. It was written by a poet and a humorist named Shel Silverstein. And then it was later made famous by Johnny Cash because uh, Silverstein allowed him to sing the song. And really, it was just kind of a... And he thought that this would be a great song to sing at the prison. And actually, the, the inmates really loved the song, A Boy Named Sue, and it was the hit, the hit of that concert. And he ended up running with it, even though he never really intended to. And it became maybe one of the, the most famous song that he ever sang. And it probably was all inspired by this prosecutor that was involved in the Scopes trial that just had this you know, very feminine name named Sue. So the other possible theory, and there's possibly two um, items of inspiration for that song, um, Shel Silverstein also had a good friend who was named Gene. And a lot of people think that because his friend Gene was made fun of a lot when he was a kid for the uh, possibly borderline feminine sounding name, that maybe that was the inspiration for, or possibly both. But we do know that Johnny Cash actually sent the ex-prosecutor Sue Hicks a autographed copy of the record that said, To Sue, how do you do? And Hicks responded that, you know, I've tried one, over 800 murder cases in my career, thousands of other cases, but I've had the most publicity from having the name Sue uh, from the Johnny Cash song and also from this evolution trial, which was the Scopes trial. And that's basically how it goes, Sue. Um, nobody cares about the 800 murder cases and, and other cases you tried. It, it, it all comes down to um, a Johnny Cash song. Um, the main lawyers that were involved and why I'm interested in it, um, involved in the Scopes trial, were Clarence Darrow for the defense and for the prosecution ended up being William Jennings Bryan, who, of course, has the same last name as me and whose family was from West Virginia back when it was Virginia, um, just like mine. 
And um, Darrow was possibly the most famous trial lawyer of all time. William Jennings Bryan, while also a trial lawyer, was most famous for being the Democrat nominee for president three times in a row and losing all three times. I, at least I think it was in a row. Maybe there was one in between. I don't recall. But three times he was the Democrat nominee. So you can imagine. And he, you can imagine that would be like for a trial today, um, you know, someone picking the, you know, the most famous lawyer that you would think of, of, of this time. I don't know, maybe Alan Dershowitz or something, though I don't know how much of a trial lawyer he is rather than, you know, an appellate lawyer type or a law professor or something like that. Maybe it would be, you know, somebody like a, well, I, I don't even want to go there naming names, but you, you know, you've heard names, maybe Jerry Spence. Let's go with Jerry Spence, though. I don't know whether he's trying cases now yet or not. And he certainly wasn't as famous as Clarence, Clarence Darrow. But somebody of that known skill level um, being hired for the defense. And so then the prosecutor, who was who was the Sioux guy, he was at least one of the prosecutors, he said, well, hell, we got to go out and we have to find somebody you know, even more famous than Clarence Darrow. So who do they go to? Well, William Jennings Bryan, who was a famous, uh, you know, great orator, just a wonderful speaker. And that's really what he was known for. And, and he really attracted the crowds. And um, so you got thinking in modern terms, you know, just the fact that he had been a Democrat nominee three times and he was you know, basically a progressive hero of the, of the time, though I don't, I don't know that the term means the same today. But he was known as a populist, you know, a man of the people, not representing the, the rich Republicans, the corporations, but just a man of, of the people. Uh, of, of the working class and not of the communist or socialist sort, really. I mean, this was really, you know, kind of grassroots, more of a Southern representation, because in those days, the most of the South was Democrat and a lot of the North, the industrialized North, um, the wealthier uh, North were, were the Republicans. And, you know, you, you, it's not exactly a flip from what we have today, but, but it was a completely different dichotomy. And what you had lining up with this trial was kind of a North versus South, rich versus poor, and also Christianity or religion versus atheism. Or maybe not necessarily atheism, but more of a view of separation of church and state. Um, and, and keeping it completely out of the public education system, because that's how this whole thing started, because um, of the law in the state of Tennessee called the Butler Act, which made it illegal for a public school teacher to teach um, evolution in schools. And many of the activists of the time, and this was not started by Clarence Darrow, but, you know, the ACLU, I believe, and other activists, they sought out this criminal prosecution so that they could get a conviction under the Butler Act for teaching evolution illegally and then appeal it to a higher court in order to defeat the law with the courts. So, you know, it's no new thing that when activists cannot achieve what they're looking to do in a state legislature or the national legislature that they turn to the courts where they may have more support. But that's what happened here is they sought out this, you know, this prosecution. John Scopes was a public school teacher, a math teacher, and a science teacher. He was only 24 years old, and he had basically agreed to admit under oath and to accept the criminal charge of teaching evolution. And he encouraged his students to testify against him, many of which did. And to make a long story short, they, they wanted a trial and they wanted a conviction. But it was about much more than that because it sparked something in the, the Southern people, and especially there around, this was in Dayton, Tennessee, of they felt that their religion, that Christianity, was under attack by the, the liberal North, by the rich, and they wanted to defend that. So through Sue Hicks, they sought out William Jennings Bryan. So 
Although there's no real comparison between a modern-day person and William Jennings Bryan, but just fame-wise, Hillary Clinton ran for president one time and lost. Now, she was already famous. But imagine that Hillary then ran two more times, both times getting the Democrat nomination and losing both times in brutal campaigns where she's on the campaign trail and speaking anywhere and everywhere. That is the level of political infamy that William Jennings Bryan had at the time. I mean, he was loved so much or he had so much political um, gravitas that three times in a row they tried to get him elected. So this is a, a politico if there's ever been one. And this is a guy whose life is surrounded on, you know, with, with politics. And so they brought him into it. And once they brought him into it, and then all bets were off as far as this being a normal trial. So this was 1925, and there had already been, they're going on the second, quote, trial of the century for the 20th century. And they still had 75 years to go, but... Just the year before, or not even a full year before, in September of 1924, was the first trial of the century, also involving Clarence Darrow as the defense lawyer. This was the murder case involving two people called Leopold and Loeb, and they were two wealthy students at the University of Chicago, who in May of 1924 kidnapped and murdered a 14-year-old kid named Bobby Franks, and this was in Chicago. And this is a really bizarre story, but supposedly they had, um, you know, been reading all this uh, philosophical BS, and and they were reading this uh, Nietzsche, and they started to believe in this concept of superhuman intelligence, and they began to believe that they were so smart that they were above the law, that you know nobody could catch them, and so. They started committing uh, petty crimes, and they were just kids themselves, practically, 18 and 19 years old, and it just wasn't enough attention for them, so they decided that they were going to kidnap and, and murder somebody, and so they targeted this, this local kid. Uh, they rented a car under a false name. They pulled up to the kid while he was walking down the street and offered him a ride home. And once he was in the car, uh, whichever one of them was sitting in the back seat, used a chisel, apparently, um, to hit the kid in the back of the head and dragged him in the back seat of the car, put a gag on him, and and killed him. And so at that point, they drove out to Indiana to a predetermined location uh, where they were going to dump the body. They removed the kid's clothes. Uh, closed. They tried to conceal the body in a culvert, and then they poured hydrochloric acid on the body so as to attempt to prevent identification. And so they're in Indiana, and by the time they returned to Chicago, people were already looking for the kid. And ingeniously, and I say that sarcastically, Leopold called the kid's mother at that point, identifying himself as, under a pseudonym, uh, George Johnson, he said he was, and told her that her child had been kidnapped and that he could be returned safely for a ransom. And he told her that written instructions would arrive providing a ransom for his safe return. So the following morning, they typed out on a stolen typewriter a ransom note and provided it to the family. And... Um, there was going to then be a second phone call to the family in order to dictate to them instructions on how to pay them the ransom. But it all went to hell pretty quickly because before they could even accomplish this, the child's body was found in, in the culvert in Indiana and apparently identified because they had already been Uh, The kid had been reported missing and they were already looking for the body by the time that those guys even got back to Chicago. And at that point, that's when things really got uh, bad. Leopold, for some reason, began talking to police and talking to reporters and commenting on the murder. 
And instead of just shutting up and going about his business, and he told one detective, quote, if I were to murder anybody, it would be such a cocky little son of a bitch as Bobby Franks. And just a bizarre thing to say um, in the, and under those circumstances. And um, they weren't quite as smart as they thought they were. At the site where Franks' body was found, police found eyeglasses, which were fitted with a unique hinge mechanism. And... Um, they were able to figure out where these unique eyeglasses were sold in the city of Chicago. And it turns out really only one of three customers in the entire city would have purchased those, those glasses, sunglasses, and one of whom was Leopold. And so, of course, he was asked about this. And again, he wasn't as smart as he thought he was. He, you know, and, and if you're a criminal defendant, and you're being interrogated, and you're asked something like this, that is a turning point. Do you admit that they're yours? That Do you admit, in other words, that you were at the scene where they found that item? Or do you not admit it? So in, I don't know that there's a right answer to that other than, you know, if you break a law, don't tell anyone about it, don't talk to the police. But they were too smart. So He answered it, and he said that, well, yeah, it is his. He must have dropped it while he was there on a bird-watching expedition the prior weekend. Oops. Well, you know, at that point, he placed himself at the scene. And then they found a destroyed typewriter uh, at the bottom of a lake. And the two men were officially picked up, arrested, or at least picked up and uh, brought in for questioning. Both men had a pre-prepared uh, alibi involving picking up two women while driving in Leopold's car. However, uh, that quickly fell apart. Um, police questioned Leopold's chauffeur, and again, these were two wealthy kids from Chicago, and the chauffeur said, well, actually, um, on that day or on that weekend, Leopold's car was undergoing maintenance, and it was in the shop, and he was able to verify that. So... That, you know, destroyed their alibi uh, pretty quickly. Loeb spilled the beans, and he pointed the finger at Leopold. And then, you know, it, I believe Leopold confessed after that, and it was pretty much a done deal at that point. So both families were these wealthy um, New York, or not New York, wealthy Chicago families. And so no expense would be spared in their defense. So who did they hire? Clarence Darrow. And it was rumored at the time that they had paid him a million dollars to defend these two kids, but it turns out it was about $70,000. Still a lot of money in 1924. Um, but what was he going to do? You know, they had, they, the police had the case locked up. They found the body, the, the, the typewriter. Um, they had confessed. I mean, what are you going to do? Um, and there wasn't a whole lot he could do as far as the convictions were concerned. Most of of what Darrow could do was try to save their lives from the death penalty, which they had in Illinois at the time. And Darrow was a well-known activist against the death penalty, and so this is something he was passionate about. So he he took on the case for a fee, of course. But you know, the the entire trial would basically be. I think they maybe they even admitted guilt, and and I'm not sure if they even contested it. Basically, the entire thing was just about sentencing. And Darrow gave a 12 hour, 12 hour oral argument um, to the court on sentencing. And you know that's just that's just crazy. I mean, most most sentencing's that that. I've been involved in, I mean, you might get, might, in a serious felony case, I mean, you might get 45 minutes or something. I mean, that's still a long time um, for one lawyer to discuss sentencing. So this was more, this and this was almost rising to the level of the Scopes trial because there's a lot of publicity, and it almost became about something more important than those two individuals. It became... And especially, you know, with the involvement of Darrow and the discussion of the death penalty, it became sort of a philosophical and moral um, and legal discussion of the death penalty. Here's an excerpt of a part of that argument that really, really is very well done. And really, this, if you if you listen to the words, this was actually the first 
affluenza case. And remember that kid, that uh, the real wealthy kid that kept getting in trouble. Uh, was it in Texas or Alabama or something? And in any event, his uh, defense attorney had called basically uh, his him having a sickness uh, known as affluenza, which was basically he grew up a rich kid and just really, as a result, didn't know right from wrong. And that's kind of what Clarence Darrow did really back in 1924. And listen to this. And this is uh, Darrow's words. This terrible crime was inherent in his organism, and it came from some ancestor. Is any blame attached because somebody took Nietzsche's philosophy seriously and, his f and fashioned his life upon it? It is hardly fair to hang a 19-year-old boy for the philosophy that was taught him at the university. Now, Your Honor, I have spoken about the war. I believed in it. I don't know whether it, I was crazy or not. Sometimes I think perhaps I was. I approved of it. I joined in the general cry of madness and despair. I urged men to fight. I was safe because I was too old to go. I was like the rest. What did they do, right or wrong, justifiable or unjustifiable, which I need not discuss today? It changed the world. For four long years, the civilized world was engaged in killing men. Christian against Christian, barbarian uniting with Christians to kill Christians, anything to kill. It was taught in every school, I in the Sunday schools. The little children played at war, the toddling children on the street. Do you suppose this world has ever been the same since? How long, Your Honor, will it take for the world to get back the humane emotions that were slowly growing before the war? How long will it take the calloused hearts of men before the scars of hatred and cruelty shall be removed? We read of killing 100,000 men in a day. We read about it and we rejoiced in it, if it was the other fellows who were killed anyways. We were fed on flesh and drank blood, even down to the prattling babe. I need not tell you how many upright, honorable young boys have come into this court charged with murder, some saved and some sent to their death, boys who fought in this war and learned to place a cheap value on human life. You know it and I know it. These boys were brought up in it. The tales of death were in their homes, their playgrounds, their schools. They were in the newspapers that they read. It was part of the common frenzy. What was a life? It was nothing. It was the least sacred thing in existence, and these boys were trained to this cruelty. It will take 50 years to wipe it out of the human heart, if ever. I know this, that after the Civil War in 1865, crimes of this sort increased, marvelously. No one needs tell me that crime has no cause. It has as a definite cause as any other disease. And I know that out of the hatred and bitterness of the Civil War, crime increased as America had never seen before. I know that Europe is going through the same experience today. I know it has followed every war, and I know it has influenced these boys so that life was not the same to them as it would have been if the world had not made red with blood. I protest against the crimes and mistakes of society being visited upon them. All of us have a share in it. I have mine. I cannot tell and I shall never know how many words of mine might have given birth to cruelty in place of love and kindness and charity. Your Honor knows that in this very court, crimes of violence have increased growing out of the war. Not necessarily by those who fought, but by those who learned that blood was cheap and human life was cheap. And if the state could take it lightly, why not the boy? There are causes for this terrible crime. There are causes, as I have said, for everything that happens in the world. War is a part of it. Education is a part of it. Birth is a part of it. Money is a part of it. All these conspired to compass the destruction of these two poor boys. Has the court any right to consider anything but these two boys? The state says that your honor has a right to consider the welfare of the community as you have. If the welfare of the community would be benefited by taking these lives, well and good. I think it would work evil that no one could measure. Has your honor a right to consider the families of these defendants? I have been sorry and I am sorry for the bereavement of Mr. and Mrs. Franks, for those broken ties that cannot be healed. All I can hope and wish is that some good may come from it all. But as compared with the families of Leopold and Lowell, the Franks are to be envied and everyone knows it. I do not know how much salvage there is in these two boys. I hate to say it in their presence, but what is there to look forward to? I do not know but what, Your Honor, would be merc merciful to them, but 
not merciful to civilization, and not merciful if you tied a rope around their necks and let them die. Merciful to them, but not merciful to civilization, and not merciful to those who would be left behind. To spend the balance of their days in prison is mighty little to look forward to, if anything. Is it anything? They may have the hope that as the years roll around, they might be released. I do not know. I do not know. I will be honest with this court as I have tried to be from the beginning. I know that these boys are not fit to be at large. I believe they will not be until they pass through the next stage of life, at 45 or 50. Whether they will then, I cannot tell. I am sure of this that I will not be here to help them. So far as I am concerned, it is over. I would not tell this court that I do not hope that sometime, when life and age have changed their bodies as they do, and have changed their emotions as they do, that they may once more return to life. I would be the last person on earth to close the door of hope to any human being that lives, at least of all to my clients. But what have they to look forward to? Nothing. And I think here of the stanza of Hoosman. Now hollow fires burn out to black, and lights are fluttering low. Square your shoulders, lift your pack, and leave your friends and go. Oh, never fear, lads, nots to dread. Look not left nor right. In all the endless road you tread, there's nothing but the right. I care not, Your Honor, whether the march begins at the gallows or when the gates of Joliet close upon them. There is nothing but the night, and that is of little for any human being to expect. But there are others to consider. Here are these two families who have led honest lives, who will bear the name that they bear, and future generations must carry it on. Here is Leopold's father, and this boy was the pride of his life. He watched him, he cared for him, he worked for him. The boy was brilliant and accomplished. He educated him, and he thought that fame and position awaited him. As it should have awaited, it is a hard thing for a father to see his life's hopes crumble into dust. Should he be considered? Should his brothers be considered? Will it do to society any good or make your life safer or any human being's life safer if it should be handed down from generation to generation that this boy, their kin, died upon the scaffold? And Loeb's the same. Here are the faithful uncle and brother who have watched here day by day while Dickie's father and his mother are too ill to stand this terrific strain and shall be waiting for a message which means more to them than it can mean to you or me. Shall these be taken into account in this general bereavement? Have they any rights? Is there any reason, Your Honor, why their proud names and all the future generations that bear them shall have this bar sinister written across them? How many boys and girls, how many unborn children will feel it? Is it bad enough as it is? God knows. It is bad enough, however it is, but it's not yet death on the scaffold. It's not that. And I ask, Your Honor, in addition to all that I have said to save two honorable families from a disgrace that never ends, and which could be of no avail to help any human being that lives, now I must say a word more, and then I'll leave this with you where I should have left it long ago. None of us are unmindful of the public. Courts are not, and juries are not. We placed our fate in the hands of a trained court, thinking that he would be more mindful and considerate than a jury. I cannot say how people feel. I have stood here for three months, as one might stand at the ocean trying to sweep back the tide. I hope the seas are subsiding and the wind is falling, and I believe they are, but I wish to make no false pretenses to this court. The easy thing and the most popular thing to do is to hang my clients. I know it. Men and women who do not think will applaud. The cruel and thoughtless will approve. It will be easy today, but in Chicago, and reaching out over the length and breadth of the land, more and more fathers and mothers, the humane, the kind, and the hopeful, who are gaining an understanding and asking questions not only about these poor boys, but about their own. These will join in no acclaim at the death of my clients. These would ask that the shedding of blood be stopped, and that the normal feelings of man resume their sway. And as the days and the months and the years go on, they will ask it more and more. But, Your Honor, what they shall ask may not count. I know the easy way. I know the future is with me. 
and what I stand for here, not merely for the lives of these two unfortunate lads, but for all boys and all girls, for all of the young, and as far as possible for all of the old. I'm pleading for life, understanding, charity, kindness, and the infinite mercy that considers all. I'm pleading that we overcome cruelty with kindness and hatred with love. I know the future is on my side. Your honor stands between the past and the future. You may hang these boys. You may hang them by the neck until they are dead. But in doing so, it will turn your face towards the past. In doing it, you are making it harder for every other boy who in ignorance and darkness must grope his way through the mazes, which only childhood knows. In doing it, you will make it harder for unborn children. You may save them and make it easier for every child that sometime may stand where these boys stand. You will make it easier for every human being with an aspiration and a vision and a hope and a fate. I am pleading for the future. I am pleading for a time when hatred and cruelty will not control the hearts of men. When we can learn by reason and judgment and understanding and faith that all life is worth saving and that mercy is the highest attribute of man. I feel that I should apologize for the length of time that I have taken. This case may not be as important as I think it is, and I am sure I do not need to tell this court or tell my friends that I would fight just as hard for the poor as for the rich. If I should succeed, my greatest reward and my greatest hope will be that for the countless unfortunates who must tread the same road and blind childhood that these poor boys have trod, that I have done something to help human understanding, to temper justice with mercy, to overcome hate with love. I was reading last night of the aspiration of the old Persian poet Omar Khayyam. It appealed to me as the highest that I can vision. I wish it was in my heart, and I wish it was in the hearts of all. So I be written in the book of love. I do not care about the book above. Erase my name, or write it as you will. So I be written in the book of love. And that was the end of his summation to the judge, pleading for the lives of Leopold and Loeb. And, you know, it brings to mind, you know, the oldest of all the lawyer jokes is, you know, how do you know when a lawyer is telling the truth? Of course, when his lips are moving. Now, there's no doubt that everything that he said, I mean, is full of BS. I mean, there's, there's lots of BS in there. And one of the most famous things that, or one of the things that Clarence Darrow was most famous for, and in a bad way, and I had read, read a, uh, a biography of Clarence Darrow possibly before I went to law school, maybe while I was in law school, I don't recall, that, you know, there was a whole big preface, preface in the book about, you know, let me caution you know, your expectations because, you know, a lot of people believe that Clarence Darrow uh, bribed some jurors at some point. And if, if true, then he's not a good lawyer. He's an awful lawyer, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I don't know whether that's true or not, but there's no doubt that, that Clarence Darrow I mean, was an absolute master of oral persuasion. And I can say that as somebody who's been in the hot seat, been in the position of having to stand up while some young kid's life is, is literally on the line, and BS or no BS, that is a crushing um, weight on your shoulders. And... I had never really read this before about what Clarence Darrow said here, but you know, it, it almost really makes me happy because it mirrors some of the things that I've felt and some of the things that I've said to juries before. And you know, I can recall one time I almost teared up in front of a jury trying to tell them about the crushing, you know, the, the, the anxiety that, that I had and, and, standing in front of them and having the responsibility of saying, you know, saying something, of, of saying what needs to be said and not saying what doesn't need to be said and answering questions they may have. And of course, in our process, they can't ask me questions. You know, he's talking to the judge here, but this is, you know, he was, he was trained in speaking to a jury and he's making a jury argument, no doubt, even though he's talking to a judge, he's trying to persuade by appealing to his emotions, his sense of duty, 
And that's really the same thing you're doing with a jury. You know, you're, you're talking more emotion and and uh, policy than you are about, well, what the law says and what actually happened as far as the facts go. But, you know, jurors, I think it's a very persuasive thing to do to be honest. I mean, you just can't beat real honesty. And you can see several times in there in there. Darrow, you know, basically says, look, to be honest, I'm, I'm not sure, um, you know, what always is the right thing to do. Um, but, you know, and that is that kind of that just gives us it gives credibility to what you're saying. And, and it's true. That's not necessarily the BS. But, you know, you can see where he's going with this from, you know, look towards the future, not the past. And it's an argument against the death penalty. And it's a very persuasive argument. And it's an argument that doesn't even take into account the, the, the discussions nowadays that happen about the death penalty, which really have to do with innocent people or the danger of innocent people being executed. He's just talking about death and in theory and really it's it's a it's a fascinating argument and really it's just a master class to read and or try to read anyways exactly what he said and i guarantee you this was all off the cuff he wasn't reading from a a pre-prepared set of notes he was flowing and really that's that's not something you can teach you either have it or you don't have it And, and you develop it i mean you're not born being able to do that and I, I do, I've done it in my own little way, but you come to realize when that's your job to, to to be in that hot seat that there is some um, credibility in being honest and letting things flow from from your heart and um, you know speaking as if you know you were your own conscience speaking. You know, it's not all good it's not all bad but you know you you kind of go back and forth on things and we also see where he uses poems not once but twice in this particular um, argument and really i mean i I guess where i ended up as a trial lawyer you know was begun by him and you know i had learned something from jerry spence about you know the bird in the the whole bird in the hand story and he had in one of jerry spence's books he told the story of how he left the jury with a little story. And, you know, I tried this one time. I, I had a jury trial for, it was a felony um, arson, first-degree arson trial. And so th- this was a kid, basically. I don't remember if he was 19, maybe 20, 21, I don't recall. Some, somewhere around there. And if he got convicted of this, I mean, he's looking at a long time in prison. I mean, his life is over for, for the rest of the first half of his life anyways. Um, and, and this was just, they had this case locked up tight and, and, uh, I did everything that I thought I could do. And then, you know, I, I like so much the, the idea of, of making sure of leaving off in such a way, you know, with a story or a poem or something like that, something that instills the, in the drawers, the, the thoughts that you want them to think, you know, the, not just not just the logistics of what they're doing, but the broader picture, you know, of life and, and love and, and, uh, and, and, and poetry, as he says. And Jerry Spence had told a story about the old man and the bird. And, and I left the jury off with this one time. And, you know, after I got done, and it wasn't a 12-hour closing argument at all. Um, it may have been an, an hour, 45 minutes, I don't recall. But, you know, it... I did it the best I could, and you know I always look the jurors in the eyes. Um, you know I, I don't I go back and forth. I make sure that I look at all of them in the eyes as I'm talking to them because I want them to pay attention to me. And also there's some communication there. They can't ask me questions, but they you know you can see in their eyes whether they believe you, they don't believe you, they like what you're saying, they don't like what you're saying. So, you know, I had been talking to them for quite a while about, you know, something very important. And I left off with this story. I think it was actually maybe a Native American folktale or maybe from uh, India, India folktale. I don't recall. It was some sort of proverb or old folktale. 
But basically, it was about this wise woman and this smart-ass little kid. And the, the, the kid had a bird in, in his hand. And he was going to show the old wise woman that she wasn't that wise and that he was actually wise. And really a lot, of, a lot like Leopold and Loeb. Um, just a young kid that didn't, didn't really understand the world. And the kid said, and I think maybe in the story when I told it, it, it had been a wise man. I don't recall. But anyways, about the way the story goes is, is the kid says, you know, old woman, he called, you know, come and show me how wise you are. And the woman, you know, calmly said, okay, may, may I help you? He said, you know, you say you know everything. Why don't you prove it? What am I holding behind my back? The young boy demanded. And the old woman thought for a moment and, you know, she could fairly make out the, or faintly make out the sound of a, maybe a bird's wings rustling around right behind the kid. So she said, well, I, I do not say I know everything, but, you know, I do believe that you're holding a bird in your hands. And the boy was mad. How could she possibly have known this? So quickly he came up with a new scheme and he said, well, is the bird dead or alive? And if the woman replied alive, he would crush it with his hands and prove her wrong. And if she answered dead, on the other hand, he would pull the living bird from behind his back and allow it to fly away. Either way, he would prove his point the wise woman would be discredited and he would be known as the wiser. So, very good, he called. It is a bird, but tell me, is the bird I'm holding alive or dead? The wise woman paused for a long moment and while the boy waited in anticipation, again, the woman spoke calmly in response. The answer, my young friend, is in your hands. The answer is in your hands. And the boy realized that the wise woman had once again spoken correctly and truthfully. The answer was indeed in his own hands. Feeling that the bird was moving feebly in his hands as it tried to escape, he suddenly felt very ashamed. The answer was in his hands. And so, you know, I told the story to the jury and then they were all listening, you know, for the, basically the, the end of the story. And I looked at him and said, and you know, Basically, so I'm finished here, and I hope I did, you know, the best job that I could, but I want you to understand that my client is in your hands. And so I ended off like that, and, and, and it wasn't my idea. I'd kind of stolen it from Jerry Spence, but it really was, um, it really fit the circumstances, and and it apparently worked in that case, or I mean, I'm sure they had made up their mind already, but the, the jury came back in that case in like 12 minutes. So I was really happy about that, but it was such a relief. Um, and now I, I really like to try cases now that have to do with disputes over money because it's just such less anxiety um, rather than somebody's freedom. But that's the way Daryl was. And that is, those are the circumstances under which he was brought into the Scopes trial because that had just happened in 19, September of 1924. So those, that is the um, context in which the Scopes trial takes place. And basically, this is the most famous, most high-paid um, trial lawyer, and still is probably the most famous. I mean, there's, there's really been nobody else that even approached him, and we can see why. I mean, he, he really is a poet with his words, but it's not just all BS. You know, there's some in there, of course, but it's just... You know, he can almost say what, what he's thinking and, and what you are thinking. So here he talks about the future as if he knows um, what's going to happen in the future. And again, O.J. Simpson's not even born yet. But here, you know, he's placing in a different context. But, you know, how could he even have known all the troubles there would be in the future and all the troubles that we've had now with the the innocent people being convicted and, and even executed, I mean, it, it just got worse and worse. It hadn't even started to get worse at this time. So he really was um, a, a visionary as far as the criminal justice system um, is concerned. And he's right that he wouldn't be around to see it, which, he, of course, he was not. So another aspect of being a trial lawyer, and that is what... It, came up in the Scopes trial is cross-examination. So not just giving a speech, 
but questioning a hostile witness. And that's what cross-examination is. And a good cross-examination is really, it, it doesn't matter what the witness says necessarily because you're saying it with your question. And that's what's important. Or if the answer does matter, you already know the answer. And maybe you can prove the answer if they say something different. So that's cross-examination. And they had the weird circumstance during the Scopes trial of Clarence Darrow putting William Jennings Bryan on the stand and cross-examining him. So that's like the defense lawyer puts the prosecutor on the stand and asks him questions. That's not something that ever happens in a criminal trial. And I looked into it, and it really only happened here because Bryan agreed to it. And again, they were really dealing with more than just this math and science teacher. And, but the deal was is that Brian was then going to get to question Darrow. And, you know, you'll see that Darrow was pretty shrewd. And he, he always looked at these little rules and the, the technicalities, and he squirmed out of it somehow, him having to testify. And so it was all you remember today, and really all that happened was is he cross-examined William Jennings Bryan. And I have the transcript of that, and, and uh, this is kind of why they call it the monkey trial, and, and also because it's about evolution. But some of the, the, the back and forth between Darrow and Brian was just like legendary, and it's just really bizarre. Um, for instance, um, these, are, these, are, these are questions by Darrow. Question, you've given considerable study to the Bible, haven't you, Mr. Brian? Answer, uh, yes, sir, I've tried to. Then you've made a general study of it? Uh, yes, I have. I've studied the Bible for about 50 years or sometime more than that. But of course, I've studied it more as I've become older than when, uh, when I was but a boy. You claim that everything in the Bible should be literally interpreted? Uh, I believe everything in the Bible should be accepted as it is given there. Some of the Bible is given illustratively. For instance, ye are of salt of the earth. I would not insist that man was actually salt or that he had flesh of salt. But it's used in the sense of salt as saving God's people. When you read that the whale swallowed Jonah, how do you liberally, literally interpret that? Well, a big fish. I believe it. I believe in a God who can make a whale and can make a man and make both, whatever he pleases. So now you say that the big fish swallowed Jonah, and he there remained for how long? Three days? And then he spewed him upon the land? You believe that the big fish was made to swallow Jonah? Well, I'm not prepared to say that. The Bible merely says it was done. You don't know whether it was the ordinary run of fish or made for that purpose? You may guess. You evolutionists guess. You're not prepared to say whether that fish was made especially to swallow a man or not? The Bible doesn't say, so I'm not prepared to say. But do you believe he made them, that he made such a fish, and that it was big enough to swallow Jonah? Yes, sir. Let me add, one miracle is just as easy to believe as another. Or just as hard, Darrow said. Brian responded, It's hard to believe for you, but easy for me. A miracle is a thing performed beyond what man can perform. When you get within the realm of miracles, it's just as easy to believe the miracle of Jonah as any other miracle in the Bible. Perfectly easy to believe that Jonah swallowed the whale? If the Bible said so, the Bible doesn't make as extreme statements as evolutionists do. The Bible says Joshua commanded the sun to stand still for the purpose of lengthening the day, doesn't it? And you believe it? I do. Do you believe at that time that the entire sun went around the earth? No, I believe that the earth goes around the sun. Do you believe that men who wrote it thought that the day could be lengthened or that the sun could be stopped? I don't know what they thought. You don't know? I think they wrote the fact without expressing their own thoughts. Well, if the day was lengthened by stopping either the earth or the sun, it must have been the earth. Well, I should say so. Now, Mr. Bryan, have you ever pondered what would have, would have happened to the earth if it had stood still? No. You have not? No. The God I believe in could have taken care of that, Mr. Darrow. Have you ever pondered what would naturally happen to the earth if it stood still suddenly? No. 
Don't you know it would have been converted into molten mass of matter? You testify to that when you get on the stand. I'll give you a chance. Don't you believe it? I would want to hear expert testimony on that. You've never investigated that subject? I don't think I have ever had the question asked. Or ever even thought of it? I've been too busy on things that I thought were of more importance than that. You believe the story of the flood to be a literal interpretation? Yes, sir. When was that flood? I would not attempt to fix the date. The date is fixed, as suggested this morning. What about 4004 B.C.? That has been the estimate of a man that is accepted today. I would not say it is accurate. That estimate is printed in the Bible? Everybody knows, at least, I think most of the people know, that this is the estimate given. But what do you think that the Bible itself says? Don't you know how it was arrived at? I never made a calculation. A calculation from what? I could not say. From the generations of man? I wouldn't want to say that. What do you think? I don't think about such things. I don't think about it. Do you think about the things you do think about? Um, well, sometimes. And at that point, there's laughter in the courtroom. Um, a police officer calls them to order. Wait until you get to me. Do you know anything about how many people there were in Egypt 3,500 years ago? Or how many people there were in China 5,000 years ago? No. Have you ever tried to find out? No, sir. You're the first man I've ever heard who's been in it, interested in it. Mr. Bryan, am I the first man you've ever heard who has been interested in the age of human societies and primitive man? You're the first man I've ever heard speak about the number of people at those different periods. Where have you lived all your life? Not near you. Nor near any anybody of learning? Oh, don't assume. You don't know it all. Do you know there are thousands of books in our libraries on all those subjects I've been asking you about? I couldn't say, but I'll take your word for it. Have you any idea how old the earth is? No. The book you've introduced in evidence tells it, doesn't it? I don't think it does, Mr. Darrow. Let's see whether it does. Is this the one? That's the one, I think. It says B.C. 4004. That's Bishop Usher's calculation. That's printed in the Bible you introduced, isn't it? Yes, sir. Would you say that the earth was only 4,000 years old? Oh, no. I think it is much older than that. How much? I couldn't say. Do you say whether the Bible itself says it's older than that? I don't think it is older or not. Do you think the earth was made in six days? Not six days. Um, not six days of 24 hours. Doesn't it say so? No, sir. The court interjects. Are you about through, Mr. Darrow? Mr. Darrow says, I want to ask a few more questions about the creation. Mr. Bryan, do you believe that the first woman was Eve? Yes. Do you believe she was literally made out of Adam's rib? I do. Did you ever discover where Cain got his wife? No, sir. I leave the agnostics to hunt for her. You've never found out? I've never tried to find. You've never tried to find? No. The Bible says he got one, doesn't it? Were there other people on the earth at that time? I cannot say. You cannot say. Did that ever enter your consideration? Never bothered me. There were no others recorded, but Cain got a wife. That's what the Bible says. Where she came from, you do not know. All right. Does the statement, quote, the morning and the evening were the first day, and, quote, the morning and the evening were the second day, mean anything to you? I do not think it necessarily means a 24-hour day. You do not. No. What do you consider it to be? I have not attempted to explain it. If you'll take the second chapter, let me have the book. The fourth verse of the second chapter says, quote, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth, when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. The word day in there, in the very next chapter, is used to describe a period. I do not see that there is any necessity for construing the words, quote, the evening and the morning as necessarily a 24-hour day, in the day when the Lord made the heaven and the earth. So, then, when the Bible says, for instance, quote, and God called the firm, firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day, that does not necessarily mean 24 hours. I do not think it necessarily does. 
Do you think it does or does not? I know a great many think so. What do you think? I do not think it does. You think those were not literal days? I do not think they were 24-hour days. What do you think about it? That's my opinion. I don't know that my opinion is better on that subject than those who think it does. You do not think that? No, but I think it would be just as easy for the kind of God we believe in to make the earth in six days as in six years or in six million years or in 600 million years. I do not think it important whether we believe one or the other. Do you think those were literal days? My impression is they were periods, but I would not attempt to argue as against anybody who wanted to believe in literal days. I will read it to you from the Bible. Quote, And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust thou shalt eat all the days of thy life. Do you think that is why the serpent is compelled to crawl upon its belly? I believe that. Have you any, any idea how the snake went before that time? No, sir. Do you know whether he walked on his tail or not? No, sir. I have no way to know. Laughter in the audience. Now, you refer to the cloud that was put in the heaven after the flood. The rainbow. Do you believe that? Read it. All right, Mr. Bryan. I'll read it for you. Brian, um, Your Honor, I think I can shorten this testimony. The only pur purpose um, Darrow has is to slur the Bible, and I will answer his, his question. I will answer it all at once. I have no objection in the world. I want the world to know that this man who does not believe in a God is trying to use a court in Tennessee. Darrow, I object to that. Brian, continuing, to slur at it, while I I will it will require time. I am willing to take it. Darrow, I object to your statement. I'm exempting you on your fool ideas that no intelligent Christian on earth believes. The court interjects. Court is adjourned until 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. So that is the really bizarre line of questioning that takes place at the Scopes trial. That's probably the most famous cross-examination really in American history. And you can see where Darrow had his strategy of putting his opponent lawyer, Mr. Bryan, on the stand himself. And Bryan agreed because he believed that the agreement was is that Darrow was going to be put on the stand next. But as you can see, it was such a ruckus, really, and and so far beyond you know the relevancy and the scope of, of what was supposed to be happening there that um, Darrow ended up not even being put on the stand. Um, so, you know, it kind of backfired on, on Brian and, you know, he hadn't been in a trial in 36 years and Darrow, yeah, you know, Darrow had this strategy of just trying to make a complete fool out of Brian. And really maybe one of the, the heroes out of it for the, the, the Southern people, the poor people, the, the, the Christians, um, was, was Brian um, getting on the stand and defending the Bible. And, and then you have the hero for science and, and um, you know, the, the other point of views, um, you know, questioning Brian on the stand and just with all these questions that they feel just are ridiculous and point out the ridiculousness of, of religion. So what was the legacy of the Scopes trial? You know, from a religious point of view, some people would argue that the impact of the Scopes trial from is, you know, had brought kind of a negative point of view from the, the country towards uh, religious fundamentalism. Whereas before the Scopes trial, um, fundamentalism referred to a radical evangelical uh, movement, and after the trial, it became became used as a, a as a insult. You know, it, it was a term for for you know Southerners who were isolationists and who were um, you know prejudiced, and it took a long time in the opinion of, of some people for the word fundamentalism or fundamentalist Christian to 
um, regain its, its true meaning. Sadly, William Jennings Bryan died only five days after the trial. And many people I've heard said, um, you know, kind of died as a result of a, of a broken heart. And um, really the way that he was treated by Darrow of being placed on the stand and, and asked all these, you know, literal questions about the Bible. And, you know, this is a, a man, if you look at his life, uh, his involvement in politics, his, uh, you know, it, it, it really was a traumatic event for him. Um, but it's probably the as famous as he was. Really, the the most famous thing about him really is his involvement in this trial. But it literally killed him. And probably the most you know lasting legacy of the Scopes trial is that's kind of still going on today, though in a different way. Now the Tennessee Supreme Court did overturn the Scopes uh, conviction. But on a technicality, it did not say, however, that, you know, what the activist had wanted it to say was that it's illegal to teach evolution in public schools. <clears throat> so that really didn't get settled in and of itself until the 1960s in a United States Supreme Court decision. In 1968, uh, the United States Supreme Court in Epperson versus Arkansas unanimously struck down a 1928 Arkansas law that barred teachers in public schools from teaching or using textbooks that discussed human evolution. In that ruling, the uh, chief justice who wrote the, the decision referenced a scope case and uh, noted, um, called it Tennessee's monkey law. And, uh, you know, so it got kind of incorporated into that Supreme Court decision in 1968. And that kind of put an end to the evolution argument in public schools. But now it's still this this argument is still coming before the court in the form of laws regarding the teaching of what's known as intelligent design and whether that violates the First Amendment's Establishment Clause. And, um, you know, there were there's been some recent cases or at least one recent case on this. In 2005, a federal judge in Pennsylvania held that teaching intelligent design violated the First Amendment's Establishment Clause. Uh, the judge said that the, quote, overwhelming evidence at trial established that intelligent design is a religious view, a mere relabeling of creationism and not a scientific theory. So there's one thing that's probably for sure going forward is that we haven't heard the last of, of this debate um, in the form of, of now, um, instead of a law against the teaching of non-religious theories such as evolution, um, we have laws um, and practices, policies against religion um, that foreclose the, the ability to teach any sort of religious views in schools and then those are are challenged under the First Amendment and um, so I think it will continue to come up it will come up again and especially now where you know if Donald Trump wins another term he may we may be looking at a 7-2 conservative majority on the Supreme Court. Now, does a conservative majority such as that allow intelligent design to be taught in schools? I don't know. I, I don't know what the relevancy it, to it is, but I do know that there is a capacity for things to change. And certainly, I don't think that we'll ever see a trial where a lawyer is put on the stand and asked all these, you know, interpretations of the Bible. Um, I think that's probably the, 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 that's not going to repeat. And really that's just an interesting part of history that will stay in history. But you know, the questions remain and it won't be the last time that those questions are asked. And it is a good question, you know, to what extent, you know, we have a freedom of religion under the first amendment, but to what extent must religion be suppressed 
under the First Amendment because it doesn't say that. It says that we are free to practice our religion and that there will be no state-sponsored religion. But does it say that there cannot be prayer in schools, that there cannot be any religious teaching in schools? No, it doesn't say that. There are other interpretations, and certainly the liberal justices such as Ruth Bader Ginsburg take the view that there will be no religion, especially not Christianity in schools whatsoever. And justices like the late Antonin Scalia took the opposite view, certainly as he was such a strong Catholic that um, Christianity or Catholicism or religion is not to be suppressed. It does not say that, that there can be no religion under the Constitution. And certainly, as indicated by or as evidenced by the Declaration of Independence, we were created on a Christian or on a religious foundation. So um, it would be inconsistent with that to suppress religion. So it will be interesting to see what happens in the future. So that's about it for the double podcast for both the John Bryan podcast that's legal related primarily and the scavengeology podcast. I really appreciate you hanging in there this entire time. If you've listened to all this, um, I really enjoyed um, really learning about some of these things. And uh, uh, like us on Facebook if you haven't done that already. It's just scavengeology on Facebook. That's the word scavenge. And then with just basically ology behind it. And also go to our website, scavengeology.com.